recognising what country was, what country is and what country should be for them as young First Nations people, but also for humans going forward and the care that we all need to take in respecting that. Welcome to the World Worth Living In podcast, the podcast where we explore the two main purposes of education. Number one, that education can help us to live well. And number two, that it can help us to create a world worth living in for everyone. This podcast is part of a global project where researchers are listening to different groups of people, discovering how to live better and how to create a world more worth living in through education. This is a podcast produced by the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. We wish to acknowledge the people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional custodians of the unceded lands on which we teach and learn at Monash, and we pay our deep respect to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the Wiradjuri people, one of the nations who has lived for over 60,000 years in what today is called New South Wales, where other members of our team work and live. The Wiradjuri term, Yindiamara Wenangana, shared with permission from Wiradjuri elder, Uncle Stan Grant Sr., has been translated into English as the wisdom of respectfully knowing how to live well in a world worth living in. my great pleasure today to speak to Christine Edwards-Groves. Christine is a professor and ARC, that's the Australian Research Council Fellow at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. She researches and publishes in the field of literacy pedagogy, classroom interaction and professional practice, particularly teaching and middle leading. Christine is a key researcher in the International Pedagogy, Education and Praxis Network and interested in the empirical application of the theory of practice architectures. Currently, she is co-authoring a book with Professor Peter Grutenbauer titled The Theory of Practice Architectures. Her most recent co-authored books are Becoming a Meaning Maker, Talk and Interaction in the Dialogic Classroom, Middle Leadership in Schools, A Practical Guide for Leading Learning, Generative Leadership, Rescripting the Promise of Action Research, and Transition and Continuity in School Literacy Development. She is very, very busy. Christine, let's start with something a little bit personal. When you are living well, what does that look like for you? It's a very interesting question to begin with. And for me, I guess living well really stems back to my own my own education, actually. And for me, it's about ensuring quality education for all. That then sort of builds the philosophy on which I, I have grounded my own teaching and my own research work itself. So it builds on the premise that excellence and living well ensures that everybody has opportunities for that excellence. So it comes from a commitment to inclusivity and equity for all people. And so that's a key pillar, for example, for my own research. That's where the chapter that we'll be talking about today really stems from, is how do, how do we ensure that people have access to quality education, regardless of their own sense of privilege or even my sense of privilege, 
working with them. So for me, coming from a rural area, it means something very particular in the context of rurality, particularly around successful outcomes for rural students who are often seen as being disadvantaged for First Nations students for whom I've always worked with. I've always been part of their life and First Nation people have always been part of mine as family members, as friends, as next door neighbours and colleagues. So for me, the notion around equity and, and inclusivity encompasses all of that. So sort of strikes at core values and strategies that I might apply in my own teaching and research, as well as in my everyday life as a human being. So I guess in many ways that really then sort of focuses in on interaction, how we interact with one another in the world, in our day-to-day interactions, equally as well as the big picture or the, you know, the blue sky thinking that we might engage with in research. So it, it's about the personal, the local that is really, you know, strikes me as really being important here. All of that wraps around then my ongoing commitment to ensuring that quality education provides people opportunities to know for themselves what living well is, what then a well worth living in might mean for them. So I guess it's many things. It's not just one thing. So it shapes those personal interactions. It shapes the pedagogical practices that I might employ as a teacher. It shapes the research practices that I might design in my own research and that with my colleagues. And in many ways, there's, a, I guess, a broad goal to redress disadvantage and what that might mean for local Indigenous folk, local people in rural settings. There's a very comprehensive answer to start. Thank you so much. Actually, just the last thing that you said there was about the rural settings, and I do want to just ask you for a little bit of an explanation for our international audience. You referred to being from a rural community and rurality. Would you mind just kind of explaining what that means? I was born and raised in in an area in Australia which is called the Riverina. So it's in southwest in the state of New South Wales. The town itself is in a small rural farming area. Polyambly is the town that I live in and it was it's still the newest town in New South Wales. So you get the sense of the size of this very small town that was designed purpose built farmers in this particular area. So being born and then raised in a very small community town where education was what we had to aspire to engage in, particularly as young women, because for us, we had to learn so we could leave, had to learn so we could have access to further education for careers, because in a town of 600 people, it did require that. So rurality for me is at the core of who I am. And for me, that means considering what that means for other rural students, other teachers who aspire to teach in rural areas and what that means in terms of the differences and in terms of what we mean by quality education for all. A lot around professional development. And I guess that first of all, as a student, then coming back to the rural area as a teacher, for me, it was around developing and professional developing. So education has sat at the core of everything in all parts of my life or all facets of my life. So when people think about rural areas in Australia, they think if you live eight hours 
southwest of Sydney, you might be near Perth, but nowhere near Perth. So, um, so for me, uh, distances is something that we encounter in our everyday life. Yeah, excellent. And such a good explanation linking your background and the reasons that you have entered education to this kind of rural community. And thank you. Now, the chapter that you are talking about today is titled The Sand Through My Fingers, Finding Aboriginal Cultural Voice, Identity and Agency on Country. And I wonder if you would give us a little background on this project. As a young person growing up, I own experience with First Nations people was in my everyday life. I have uh, Aboriginal and First Nations people as as my family members. And for me, you know, even growing up, part of my life was interacting with my best friends at school who were Aboriginal people. So I guess there's a lot of sort of, I guess, impetus for me to enter a project like this is because of where I live, where I grew up, and the people with whom I associate with. And so I think for me, this particular chapter came about because of uh, a project that I conducted with some First Nation people here in, in my local area. At that particular time, with the Aboriginal elders in my local area, there was a real desire to counter or to intervene into the life outcomes for particularly for young Aboriginal males. So part of that work then became the setting up with the Attorney General's Department in New South Wales at the time, along with advice from our Aboriginal elders and others, a centre called the Tecandi Inabara Cultural Development Centre. And it was designed to support young Aboriginal males get in touch with their own Aboriginal identities. So starting to think about themselves as First Nations, Aboriginal people, they refer to themselves as Aboriginal people, though I do too, that can strengthen their own understanding of their own lives, their own identities, and particularly the aim for the people who go to Tukandi Inabara to develop resilience so that they can be strong to follow our path into the juvenile justice system. So for that group of people, it was a really important place. My role there at the beginning, I was there as a critical friend, but also as a researcher, because one of my interests at that time was, what worked well in education for you as young people? So I had a long-standing relationship with both the participants at Tecandi, the Aboriginal elders who designed Tecandi, as well as those people who, including youth workers, the centre managers and so on. So for me, it was kind of a natural progression to really study what worked well for these young people. So for me, it became a real listening research project, equally as well as a project that was really designed to support these young people understand or develop confidence about their own selves and their own lives as young teenagers as well as Aboriginal people. So that's why the whole notion around their cultural voice was important. 
how do they associate and connect to their own Aboriginal culture, what it meant for them in their daily lives, their own identities as young people, as young Aboriginal people, and as adolescents was really important. The focus on agency in the article that I wrote was really about them finding their own voice, me enabling that voice through through the research that I conducted, that actually then provide an opportunity for them to use their voice in agentic ways. And for the outcome of this was through poetry. It wasn't really where I intended to go at the beginning of this project. But the poetry itself became such an agentic mode to express themselves both in terms of their Aboriginality, in terms of their their own life experiences, but also their experiences of education itself. So in many ways, there was beauty in the project, but there was also heartbreak in the project, you know, as I'm listening to their own stories of disadvantage, of experience in classrooms and an experience of racism. And a lot of that was really surprising to me being a teacher. So to hear from their perspectives you know, through their poetry, but also through their own voice and through the processes that I used in the research itself, it was really important for them to control the whole project. And that's why the on-country part was important. So them recognising what country was, what country is, and what country should be for them as young people, but for humans going forward and the care that we all need to take in respecting that. So for me, it was a lot of things that came together that formed up this particular chapter, which reflected some research that I had done earlier. Thank you. That was a great description. And I really like the starting point that you mentioned, asking what has worked well and i think this is quite a unique you know starting point for for research of this type is you know we're usually looking to find what's not working <laughs> and, and stop it they'll cease it you've just described a really a nice kind of building you also mentioned that this was definitely a listening project the final thing that you kind of said was about the importance of country understanding that we all understand the importance of what country is and does and should be, I think, were your words. I wonder if you could tell me more specifically, when you were listening and these young men were writing this poetry and having these conversations with you, what did you learn about what they think living well means? Just before I sort of answer that more directly, I think one of the beauties of the kind of listening, it wasn't just about with my ears, but it was also about observing what they also thought for themselves as being, you know, what works well for them. So that's why the photography part of the project was really important for these young people is because they had control over what they decided that they would photograph as being helpful for them and their learning. What helped them be successful in their lives and their learning both at Takandi but also when they went to school and so on and so forth. So I think for part of that then, it made me realise the notion around the multimodality of research, that it does require more than just as we would ordinarily consider communication. So communication for these young people had to be audio-visual. It had to encompass more than just what they said to me, which was absolutely important. But I also had to give them the space 
so that they can speak to me. As the research project progressed, knowing when and what kinds of spaces were required for these young people to express themselves in relationship to their work was critical. So it wasn't just that they could tell me, because in many cases that was a very difficult thing to do, even to the point where for one of the young men, who after we had written, you know, we'd sort of worked up the poems uh, through the processes described in the book, I offered to type it out. And so he thought that was quite cool. And I typed it out and I took it back to him. So we were sitting around on a couch that day that I handed over his piece of poetry piped up. And he looked at it and he turned away and he walked away. And I went, oh, oh okay, that's that's good. That's okay. So I started chit-chatting to another young man there. And the next minute over the loudspeakers of the room that we were in came an Eminem song. Then he came and he plonked himself down beside me and he said, I'm giving you my favourite song as thanks. Oh. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's not necessarily through words that we listen and that we, that we communicate. It was through all these other modes that really opened up the opportunity for these young people. So for them, the processes of being given or afforded the time, space, and the mode, whatever mode they selected, was really important for them. For me, I think, then sort of really focused in on or illuminated what a world worth living in is for them. Providing the multiple modes that respects and reflects them as individuals. So in many ways, I haven't really addressed your question so much as opening up at what a world worth living in for them without them saying it directly. It was also then how they responded to situations, to the situation of the piece of poultry, giving me their favourite song as, as a gift. So for me, it is around finding different ways. And I think for them too, I could safely say it was finding different ways to listen and respond and respect these young people who many of them have come from very, very difficult circumstances in their own personal lives. So for me, it is around all of those things, which not necessarily are the, you know, the glossy things that, that we might want to speak about in relationship to living well. It is those minute by minute, day to day interactions for them through their words, through their pictures, through their poetry, through them giving me the gift of their music, including paintings that they'd painted, songs, you know, using their didgeridoos and so on and so forth. So for me, it's all of those things. It's not just a single or a parallel kind of way of understanding what living well is. For me, it had to be responsive. Yeah. Right. So I think that was a critical point for this project. For me and my learning about being a researcher, equally as well as being a, a good educator. For them, being able to respond in multiple modes was critical. Yeah, great. That's uh, actually a nice kind of segue into what might be my last question. So you've given a, a really good examples of what living and being in different ways meant for them. But then if we think about the world in which they live, in which we live, what did you learn from them about the type of world that is worth living in? It's a little bit more difficult because for me, the world worth living in was their world. It was the world that they encountered that day. 
yeah. world that they encountered when Uncle Stan Grant came to visit them on graduation day. The world that you know that invited their parents in to you know for their graduation or you know for the culminating ceremonies that these young people engage with. So for them, it wasn't necessarily aspirational in terms of the whole of the world, but it was the whole of their world. Their world constituted their day-to-day. So for me, that's what I learned about living well in a world worth living in. It has to be lived well every day among individuals that we encounter. So for them, it was about how they then interacted with their teachers on that day, not necessarily anything beyond that, the scope of that. So I think for me, it is around taking and respecting that day-to-day. In many ways, people say you've got to act local to get global kind of thing or or the the kind of idioms and euphemisms around what all of these things might mean, you know, start small, get big, all those kind of things. But in reality, that's what these young men taught me is that it is their world right here and right now. And in many ways, I think about the words from Uncle Stan Grant, who I became very close with through my work at DeCandy and then subsequently as a result of my work at Charles Sturt University and now doing and learning Wiradjuri as a language myself. So for me, I hear his words when he's speaking to them, when he says to these young men, live in one world. Because quite often these young people say, oh, I live in two worlds, you know, my Aboriginal world and, you know, then my world at school and how do I walk in two worlds? And, you know, he always said to them, with, without a doubt, we live in one world. This is our world. So we need to negotiate this one world through getting in touch with our identities as Aboriginal people, as these young men sought to do when they were at Takani Inabara. So for me, it is around then respecting and nourishing what that might mean. And I suppose in many ways, that's why I'm learning Wiradjuri language myself at this moment. Because if I'm sitting on the outside of this world that these young people and other people with whom I work, without having a sense of what that might mean for them, then in many ways I'm a hypocrite. So for me, learning that language means learning that culture and being a part of that culture in a very, very different way because I'm not First Nations, I'm not an Aboriginal woman, but I am a woman who is committed to walking this path with them, particularly as we uh, seek to rebuild nations and rebuild language and reclaim language. And for me, part of my role in that then as an educator is to be the critical friend or the support for that to happen. So it means me putting my money where my mouth is, basically. Thank you for listening. We hope that what you have heard sparks thoughts, conversations, and action globally and within your local communities. We can live well and help to create a world worth living in for all. You can find us on Twitter and LinkedIn and YouTube Just search The World Worth Living In Project.